I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Why, hello there, Mr. Mahi. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Today is Easter. Happy Easter to everyone listening. And I was just talking to Mahi before we started recording. I absolutely had to have him on after Lemmings just talked him up so much. So now we finally get Mahi's side of the story and see, you know, what's the real deal with this arbitrage stuff and how to actually make money flipping toys. So for those who may not know you, Mr. Mahi, could you just give a brief introduction about who you are and what you talk about on Twitter? Sure. So I'm mainly known on this side of the internet as the arbitrage guy. Arbitrage in a literal sense is taking something from one marketplace and set, uh, sort of exchanging it on another marketplace where it has a higher value. Uh, this is something that is not exclusive to selling online or e-commerce. Uh, it is something that happens on a regular basis. Even uh, if you look at the stock market, for example, things like uh, exchange rates between currencies, arbitrage happens there. Uh, and even way back in the ancient times, there were people who uh, realized that gold, things like gold and silver were valued differently in different cities. So there were people who would go around to these different civilizations and take advantage of these different uh, rates at which things like gold and silver were valued. Uh, as uh, Chris Grant likes to put it, who's a guy who's been selling on Amazon for a very long time, uh, arbitrage is the second oldest profession in human history. And so how did you get into arbitrage specifically and why did you pick arbitrage over some other type of wi-fi money business like an e-commerce store sure so growing up uh, i wouldn't necessarily say i was an entrepreneurial type kid but i always liked the idea of doing side jobs to where i could do stuff i could work basically whenever i wanted um, and not have set hours so my first quote unquote job, I started refereeing soccer games when I was 13 years old. Uh, and basically throughout my entire life, it's mostly just been doing lots of these different side jobs. So I was a soccer referee for about five years. Uh, I did food delivery with DoorDash. For the first month of all the lockdowns in 2020, I did Instacart where everyone was too scared to go to the grocery store. And for that first month, uh, I made a bank before they added about 300,000 more workers and then it wasn't worth it anymore. But for that one month, I absolutely killed it. Um, I was a script writer for a couple of YouTube channels. Uh, I basically did like any small side job that I could do for like an hour and make um, more than hourly pay. That's sort of what I would do. I never liked the idea of having a job with set hours. So one day I came across a tweet from a guy called Jarek Lewis. Uh, some people on this side of the internet might know him as Jerry Liu. Uh, he had a Twitter thread called something along the lines of how to flip textbooks online to and make a profit, something along those lines. I don't remember exactly what it said. But being the type of person who likes side hustles and likes doing things just to make an extra buck, it sounded like a really good idea. Um, at the end of the Twitter thread, there was a link to a $40 Gumroad course. And at the time... I just graduated college and I was a bit of a frugal bro. So I didn't like the idea of spending money. Um, but I did a little bit of research and it turns out that 
that this guy, Drek Lewis, I actually knew who he was under a different alias through some of my other hobbies. Uh, and he had a very good reputation in that community. So I decided to spend the $40, buy the course, take the plunge. Uh, I flipped textbooks for about six months uh, until the end of 2021. And then in 2022, I realized that I could use uh, these, I could use very similar methods to what I was doing with textbooks, uh, but just do it to regular uh, household objects, things like makeup, uh, vitamins, uh, grocery items, things like that. Uh, and then I was just off to the races. And that's more or less how we got to where we are today. It was just through lots of uh, lots of trial and error and uh, swiping a lot of credit cards. <laughs> so when you say flipping something like a textbook, you would buy it off of Amazon? Would you buy it off of the original? I can't imagine you're buying it off the original website because those things were super expensive. So where would you buy a textbook? Sure. Uh, I can actually explain this model because it's actually a pretty interesting model in itself. Uh, so basically the way that it works is... You, there are two places you would typically buy textbooks the way that um, Jarek teaches people, which is you either buy them from Amazon or you buy them from eBay. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounds a bit odd that you would be able to buy something from Amazon and then sell it back onto Amazon for a profit. Um, however, this works because of the fulfilled by Amazon business model where you can send your inventory to Amazon and they will ship it with Prime for you. Now, the reason you're able to buy books from Amazon at a lower price is due to what's called merger fulfilled. Merger fulfilled is when the seller just has the inventory at their own warehouse or their house and they ship it directly to the customer. Now, the reason this works is because a lot of the people that you're buying books from are large warehouse sellers that have their books listed on a bunch of different websites at once. And because they do that, they're not able to use the fulfilled by Amazon um method so because of that they have to ship their books directly to customers now the reason that there's an arbitrage opportunity here is think about when you ship something the weight plays a very big factor into how much the shipping cost is and if you think about like a college textbook those if it's like one of those typical like five ten pound books uh the shipping cost is actually going to be more than what the book is worth now, the uh, United States Postal Service has something called media mail. And the way media mail works is you can ship things like books or CDs or any other form of media for a flat rate. Uh, the downside to this is that the shipping times can take up to two weeks. So the compromise is you can ship it for a relatively low price, but the shipping times are very, very slow. So the arbitrage opportunity is you actually don't need the book. So you're okay with waiting the two weeks and then you send it into Amazon where someone else who actually needs the book can buy it with the prime shipping and get it in two days. So let's say you're a college student and it's the first day of class. You didn't buy the textbook because you weren't sure if you were going to need it because anyone who's gone to college knows that for half the classes you take, you don't need the textbook. Mm -hmm. So let's say it's the first day of class. The professor says, you're going to need the textbook and you need it to do your first assignment and it's due on Friday. So you have to get the book and you have to get it fast. If you go to the bookstore, they're going to charge you up the ass for it. Yep. If you try to buy it from one of these warehouse booksellers, uh, you can get it at a low price, but you, it's media mail and it, you could, it could take up to two weeks to get that book. 
So the compromise is you buy it uh, with the prime shipping from the arbitrage seller and the arbitrage seller gets to make a profit. Uh, you get your book in two days and you also pay less than what the bookstore is charging you. Wow, that's fascinating, actually. And are there other types of products like those textbooks or is that pretty, pretty niche and not common? I would say it mostly works with textbooks specifically because of the, of media mail. I would say that is what makes this uh, a lucrative opportunity. Uh, another thing that is cool about the textbook stuff is that um, it can be a very seasonal business as well. So I think the most money I made doing the textbooks, uh, which is where most people who do this model make most of their money is going to be in August and in January. And that's when the new college semesters start. So at this point in time, the demand and the prices for these books are typically two to three X. So it's very, it's a viable strategy to spend the entire summer collecting cheap textbooks and then just uh, sending them all into Amazon, like in July, and then just uh, selling all of them in August for, you know, two to three X their original value. And so when you do Fulfilled by Amazon, you still are on the hook if nobody buys it? Uh, you do pay storage fees, and the storage fees will increase the longer it sits there. And that's why you have to make sure you're doing your research beforehand on what type of books you're buying. There is software out there that allows you to analyze the data a little bit further and see where the demand for the book is and what price it's historically sold at. There are tools that are available to you for a relatively low price that allows you to make those informed buying decisions and will likely prevent you from having to have your inventory sitting there for months on end and having to keep paying those storage fees. Okay, so that sounds like an awesome potential arbitrage opportunity. Um, so how do you find these types of products that are well suited for arbitrage on your twitter account you listed a couple different ones reverse sourcing manual sourcing so maybe could you explain those two ways um, of finding these products that are well suited for arbitrage sure so the first let's we'll talk about reverse sourcing so the concept of reverse sourcing uh it's also known as storefront stocking is the concept of uh if you find somebody's store and you know that they are an arbitrage seller, then it is probably likely that they also have products or they have other products that they are selling profitably. And if we know that they're an arbitrage seller and they're selling these types of products, we could potentially see if we can find those same items at a profitable price. So basically the way that it works is there's a, a very cheap software called SellerAmp. Uh, I believe the basic plan is like 20 bucks a month. Uh, it is very cheap, but it is like one of the most important tools you can have. It basically it has a function that allows you to very easily go through people's stores and you can check each item. Uh, you can check the data for the item what the price, what the price that it's historically been selling for. And they even have a button in the tool where it'll Google the name of the product for you. And then you can see what websites have it in stock. And then that's sort of, it's just that that's really it. You look at the product. If it looks like a good product, you Google it. And then you try to find it on whatever website might be selling it. That's really all it is. It is a very repetitive process that really just requires you to spend lots of time just going through people's stores and trying to find products. That is, uh, it is very time consuming, but it, it is also one of the best ways to find products because 
You're basically piggybacking off of somebody else's efforts. As in someone has already looked at the trends, found the data, and figured out that this product is being sold cheaply somewhere else and being uh, bought more expensively uh, at another place. And so they did all the data for you. And so now you can just take that product and do exactly what they've done. So they did all the research for you, essentially. Yeah, that's more or less uh, how it works is, you know, you're just actually i think you described it pretty well you're basically just taking other people's items and trying to find them and if you can find them at a profitable price then you know that's it It, it's pretty straightforward it just requires it can require a lot of grinding uh just because uh there's a lot of like things that you'll have to look out for but it is the most it is one of the more efficient methods if you're willing to put the time in because uh it's much there's much less likely that the items that you find are going to get saturated because of that. Cause you're not um, looking in places where lots of other people are looking. And do you have a few go-to Amazon arbitrage sellers that, you know, sell the right products and you kind of just keep going back to them to find new ones. So that is something that, uh, that is something that I do, but it is not something I do enough of. Uh, typically if I find like more than two or three good items from a single store uh, i will save that person's store on a spreadsheet and i'll typically check it every couple weeks to see if they've added anything new um that list is not as big as it should be i haven't done a good enough job of managing that um but that is definitely the way to go about it is once you build up a big catalog of other sellers who you know are doing the same thing as you then you can just keep checking them you know, every couple of weeks and they're definitely going to have new products on there uh, that you can steal. And do you stay away from any products or do you prefer to stay in certain categories? Like you said, vitamins um, and textbooks, for instance, or if you have a seller that you trust and you know they're doing the right things, but they're selling something you don't normally sell, will you take their word for it essentially and go source that product? Uh, it typically, uh, context is very important. I typically am okay with selling any category, uh, as long as it makes sense. So one thing I've started to do is I've started to shy away from stuff like shoes and clothing. There are a lot of big sellers that crush it with shoes and clothing. And if you know what you're doing, you can make a lot of money. I personally don't like it because I don't like spending a hundred dollars on a pair of shoes. And then they just get returned, but the person wore them for like two weeks and I can't resell Mm. them. Uh, I just, for that reason, I just don't like shoes and clothing or anything else, anything like that, where it's very, the return process is very easy. I assume it's the same thing with stuff like electronics, which I really don't do that much of in the first place. Um, So those are the types of products that I've started to shy away from just because I don't like having to deal with returns. It's pretty annoying. And it also just takes up a lot of time. Um, My preferred categories are stuff like vitamins and beauty products, things like makeup, skincare. The reason I like these products are for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first reason is typically these items are much smaller. So that means that the fees are going to be much lower. You can fit 50 units in a box and that's going to save you a lot of money on shipping. Um, Also, another reason these types of items are good is they're what's known as uh, replenishable items. They're going to be things that people will use up and run out of, and then they'll have to go buy more. Mm. So you think about like uh, like a sleep supplement, like magnesium or something. Eventually, you're going to run out of that magnesium, and you're going to have to go buy more. Uh, so basically, these are the types of items where 
They're small, so there's not a lot of fees. It's something that people have to buy over and over again. And in most cases, they can't be returned. Uh, like you can't return supplements to my knowledge, or at least most supplements. Uh, that's another reason why I say grocery is a great category for beginners. Uh, customers are not allowed to return the two pack of soup cans that they bought from you. Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't have, that was something that was very helpful for me when I transitioned out of textbooks into traditional arbitrage was I did a lot of high volume, low cost grocery items, and I never had a single item returned to me. So even though the profit margins weren't that high, uh, I was consistently making money in the beginning over time because I didn't have to worry about returns. And so if someone does return a product that you sold fulfilled by Amazon, what? how much are you on the hook? You have to get the product back from Amazon. What does that process look like? Sure. So there's a couple of different things that can happen. So let's say that the customer returns the product, but they never actually opened it or it's not damaged, or basically it's in a condition where it can just be resold. Amazon will keep it and it'll just go back up for sale. Uh, if it's at a point where it is damaged in some way or Amazon deems that it cannot be resold as is, it gets sent back to whatever address you have listed on your seller account. So when that happens, uh, there's a couple different paths you can take. Uh, number one, it could just be that the Amazon employee didn't actually look at the product and it actually is in a good condition to be resold and you could just send it back in uh, if it's damaged in some way uh, you can do one of two things you can either uh, try to take pictures of it and send a case to uh, amazon seller support saying hey the customer returned a damaged product uh, and you show them your proof of purchase and pictures of the damaged product there's a chance you can get reimbursed um and then there's also the option of, you know, just donating it for a tax write-off or selling it on eBay for a slightly lower price than what you would able what you would be able to sell it for on Amazon. So depending on what condition the item is in, when it gets returned, uh, that mostly determines uh, what happens after or sort of what happens next. It isn't like a, a black or white thing. There are a lot of different things that can happen when an item gets returned. It mostly just depends on the condition that it's in. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. And this is something I was noticing while just shopping on Amazon myself. Do you have repeat customers that know your store now and they trust you? I imagine you're fairly highly rated on Amazon, so you're a trusted, uh, fulfilled by merchant. Is that the case? Or so when you're saying that you need something that is uh, repeated purchases, do people come back after they buy melatonin from you and they want your melatonin? Or are they completely... Uh, just swayed by the price and we'll just take whatever Amazon reseller is selling melatonin for the cheapest. Yeah. So I guess what I mean when I'm saying that like it's an item that could be resold, it's not specifically that they're going to be buying it from me. It's just an item that they're going to go back and it basically, it basically it ensures that there's always demand for the product. That's sort of the, yep. yeah, that's sort of the point that I was getting at uh, yeah. in terms of like the repeat buyer thing. Um, I have no idea. It maybe, maybe I could have had a repeat buyer, but the reality, the reality is, is that when it comes to selling name brand products, uh, things like you know, like customer uh, appreciation, customer loyalty, things like that, that doesn't really exist. Uh, that mostly applies to stuff like uh, private label brands, where mm -hmm. you're manufacturing your own product and listing it on Amazon yourself, and you have your own brand, that sort of thing. Uh, when it just comes to reselling. That really isn't the case, especially because on a lot of items, 
uh, you, you are competing with, with at least 10 to 20 mm -hmm. other sellers. So even if you're still selling that item, when that person who bought from you comes to buy again, there's a chance that they're, they won't even buy it from you because there are other sellers on that listing that are priced competitively. Uh, and I guess we could talk about, this would be a good time to talk about the buy box. Uh, so the buy box is essentially the featured offer on an Amazon listing. So uh, where it says like add to cart or buy now, where it shows mm. you the price underneath that, it'll show where it shipped, where the item is shipped from mm -hmm. and who it is sold by. So for most items, it'll say that it is shipped by amazon.com because that, that'll mean that it's fulfilled by Amazon. And then under that, it'll say something uh, sold by, and then it'll say the name of the seller. So the buy box tends to rotate between competitively priced sellers. Um, I don't know the exact time frame. Nobody knows exactly how the buy box works or what the algorithm or what goes into the algorithm. But basically it shifts between all of the competitively priced sellers. Uh, and it might be different depending on the uh, location of the customer. So let's say uh, when you send your shipments into Amazon, they will redistribute your inventory across the country. So there is always going to be an item somewhere that can be delivered to someone in two days. So let's say that I have an item that is in uh, Charlotte, a customer that is in Charlotte for the buy box, it might show my item, even though it might be a few dollars higher than the lowest price because I'm the only seller who can provide that product in, in the prime shipping time window. Mm. That's fascinating. How do you determine what price to sell your resold products on at? Uh, so there, so when it comes to pricing, um, that mostly goes back to using software. So there is a, the most essential software for selling on Amazon is something called Keepa. Uh, what Keepa does is basically, it does a lot of different things, but for the sake of uh, simplifying it for this podcast, it basically is a graph that shows you the historical data of the product. So what has the demand been for the product? Uh, what is the What has the price been historically for the product? What has the price of the buy box been historically for the product? How many sellers have been on the listing historically on that product? And basically by using this data of how the product has performed in the past, what price it's been sold at, and how many other people have been selling it, uh, you can use that data to determine uh, what to, how to price that product. Uh, typically, for most items, I will just match whatever the current buy box price is, as mm -hmm. long as it's profitable. Um, if it's an item that gets uh, a lot of sales, let's say like more than a thousand sales a month across all sellers, I may price a bit above the buy box because that way I can likely get sales just by re relying on the location base. Mm -hmm. So because the demand for that product is so high, um, I don't have to worry about pricing competitively because I do know I'm going to have stock that's going to be the closest to someone and they are going to be willing to pay that extra two or $3 to mm -hmm. make sure they get that product the very next day. Yep. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. Fascinating stuff. My next question is just how does Amazon make money off of this? Because you said it's a $40 subscription to be an FBA seller. So you're sourcing the product. You send it to Amazon's warehouse. The customer pays for the shipping from Amazon's warehouse. So how, where is Amazon making money off of this? So Amazon takes uh, Amazon makes money for sure. They make money uh, mostly through stuff like fees. So I talked about storage fees earlier. 
-hmm. the longer that you keep something in their warehouse, the more you're going to have to pay in storage fees. Every single sale, Amazon will also take a fee. Uh, I believe it's called the referral fee. So they take about, I don't remember, I don't know the exact number, but I'm going to say they take about, uh, let's just say like 20, 25% of the sale price. Um, I don't know if that's accurate. It's because we're so spoiled nowadays. We have software that, that just calculates the profit and the ROI for us. Uh, I, so I actually don't know the exact numbers. I would assume it's like 20 to 25% of the sale price. That's my guess. Um, but I could definitely be wrong there. Uh, and also... Um, you all, there's also removal fees. So like I said before, if you get damaged products returned, um, and they have to send it back to you, there's a fee for that. So they sent for them to send it back to you. Um, they make money for, they definitely make money, uh, uh, they make a lot of money just through the fees and the, and the fees always increase. Basically they've increased fees pretty much every year. And they are, I don't see any reason why they won't. And frankly, I hope they do keep increasing fees so that the people who don't know what they're doing go out of business. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, so what would be, excuse me, <clears throat> an average profit margin that would be attractive enough to you to sell that product? So using the software and the data that you have and it spits out a number, what is a go, no-go point in terms of profit margin? Sure. So... In the beginning, uh, I was very focused on specific numbers. Like if it's not $3 profit, 30% ROI minimum, I don't want it. Uh, and that was how I was for a lot or how a long time in the beginning. Um, but I've sort of adjusted those standards over time uh, and taking into context uh, how much volume an item is doing and other factors like that to determine uh, how much uh, profit and ROI I should be going for. So for example, uh, I talked about how I love supplements because there's no returns and it's the fees are lower. So in that case, if it's a supplement where it doesn't weigh that much, uh, I only make like 25% ROI, but I know that I can sell a hundred of them. I will gladly take uh, those lower margins. Uh, and then meanwhile, if we go to like a high ticket beauty item that maybe only gets like 30 sales per month, but, uh, I can make like 50% ROI, then maybe I will buy a handful of those, even though the, the volume isn't there. Uh, so really I mostly determine that based on how many I think I can sell. So if it's like your, your average product, I like $3 profit, 30% ROI per unit. Uh, if it sells more, I'm willing to go lower. If it doesn't sell that much, it's got to go higher. Uh, that's sort of the way that I treat it. A very analytical approach. And you're using so much data in these software programs to predict how many you can sell and at what profit margin. How reliable are those software programs? And how so how often is that true? That you think you can sell 30 and you do sell 30? Uh, I would say that the data is pretty reliable, uh, especially I would say it's mostly because the data is more of a conservative estimate. Uh, I've had items where uh, the seller amp tool says this item only gets 30 sales a month and then I'll get 50 sales in a month on my own while competing with four other sellers. So I think the fact that the estimates are very conservative, um, it makes it it makes me feel a lot, a lot more comfortable when I use that data to make a buying decision. Now, obviously like things can happen, like there could be price tanking where 20 new sellers jump on a listing that can't 
support that many sellers and the price is going to start to go down. Uh, but that's not really the data's fault. That's just what happens when the supply exceeds the demand. Uh, but the data itself is, I would say it's very reliable, uh, especially because it had just, it mostly goes for those conservative estimates. And what happens after you buy, in my opinion, really, um, it, that's not the software's fault. That's your fault if you, you, do, you don't consider something like if you're buying the item on Walmart with no discounts and it's a single item, uh, there's a very realistic chance that there will be 30 new sellers by the end of next week on that item because it's very easy to find. Uh, that's not the data's fault. That's you not taking the extra steps to you know make sure that it's, it's going to be an item that's going to be difficult to replicate and is not going to have as much competition. Okay, interesting stuff there. So then... <laughs> It seems as though this data is available to everyone. These different programs that you've talked about, you just have to pay 20 bucks a month. So not a huge barrier to entry. So why do you think there, so is it ever going to be too saturated? Are there going to be too many arbitrage sellers to make any money? You mentioned previously, like you hope that the fees go up so some people will exit the market. What has your uh, experience been with the competition aspect? And is that something that you consider you know, you mentioned if there's 32 sellers on this product, I'm not going to go for it. Have you noticed that it's increased over time? Is this just becoming a more saturated market? Uh, I would say it mostly uh, certain, very certain aspects of it will be saturated. But as a whole, it will never be saturated. There's too many products and there's too much opportunity. But that being said, if you see a guy on TikTok who says, uh, I make seven figures selling Nike and Legos on Amazon and you go look at every Nike and Lego listing and there's 50 new sellers. Yeah, probably not a good idea. But mm -hmm. if you actually know how to go out of your way and learn how to source products that aren't as easily available, if you have that skill set, I don't think you're ever going to have to worry about saturation. Uh, personally, there's just too many products out there and too many different categories. Uh, you may have to pivot out of certain categories and certain brands if the hype catches on. Like for example, the hot thing right now is the Stanley tumblers. Every Stanley tumbler on Amazon has like at least a hundred sellers on it. And there's really not that much money to be made unless you're okay with like 15, 20% return on investment, which can be okay if you can sell a lot of them. But there's also, you run the risk of another hundred sellers going on that listing because it's just a hot item and it's everywhere on TikTok. And there are people on TikTok saying, you can flip Stanley's and make millions of dollars, uh, which might've been true before there was 200 sellers on the listing. Right. But uh, in my opinion, Amazon as a whole and arbitrage as a whole will never be saturated. Certain categories, certain niches might become saturated. Like I don't see myself selling that much Nike stuff ever again. But if you're able to build the skill set to actually find items yourself, uh, I don't think you'll ever have to worry about that. And actually, I want to quickly spin into a tangent on that, like Go the concept it. of actually being able to find items yourself. Um, going back to 2021, uh, which is like right after I started like selling online, but I was still mostly doing the textbook stuff. Um, the summer of 2021 was probably like the biggest opportunity for reselling ever. It was very easy to walk into a Walmart, buy 20 pools and just sell them all the very next day, drop them off uh, at like the FedEx store or whatever. And you could easily make thousands of dollars a day doing stuff like that. Um, 
the lockdowns and the supply chain the supply chain issues created like a once in a lifetime opportunity where people were just trying to get their hands on as many pools, PS5s, chlorine, things like this, where the supply was very limited. And there are lots of people who made hundreds of thousands of dollars doing this. Uh, I personally know someone who made well over six figures just flipping PS5s and graphics cards and pools and things like this. Mm. And the reason I bring this up is those days are long gone. And those people who made hundreds of thousands of dollars flipping the pools and the PS5s are still sitting on their asses waiting for the next big flip. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not coming. <laughs> so the point is, is like, if you're able to build the skill set to find items yourself and learn different, like learn different websites, learn different niches, learn how to source yourself, um, you know, you're not going to make all this money super, super quickly like those guys, but you are always going to have something that you can sell and it's going to be a lot more consistent. Um, so that's why uh, those people who made a lot of money flipping those pools and those PS5s, they're just not doing anything right now because they never actually built the skill set to source items by themselves. Okay, so I want to go back to that skill set then about how to source items. You mentioned originally that reverse sourcing is one of the key ones. So you find other Amazon sellers that are doing a good job and you see the products that they're selling. Another thing you talk about is the manual sourcing where you look for products on sale that you can sell for full price with faster shipping on Amazon. So if you could just mention, you know, what does a good sale look like? How do you know that that is going to be a significant markdown that you, that you can sell on Amazon, for instance? Sure, so manual sourcing just comes down mostly to knowledge of knowing which websites sell which products and being able to know like when an item is on sale, um, you know, how good of an opportunity is it? So for example, uh, if a department store like Macy's or JCPenney says, oh, look at this stuff, it's it's 50% off. And you actually go look at their catalog and it's like, this item has been 50% off for the past month. Um, that's not really what you want to be looking for. Uh, so actually to get really good with manual sourcing, uh, actually you can start by reverse sourcing. And then every time you come across a new website, you sign up for their email list. And then eventually you'll have a giant catalog of websites to source from that are sending you marketing emails every single day. Like, hey, this category is 20% off this week. Like for example, uh, Walgreens is a website that cycles sales all the time. Every couple of weeks, they'll do something like, hey, skincare is buy one, get one 50% off. And also there's this discount code you can use to get another 20% off your order. So when those opportunities pop up, you have to go through and look at that catalog and find these items and go, maybe not necessarily one by one. You might have to go one by one in the beginning because you don't have any experience and you don't understand like which brands are good or which type of products do well. But over time, uh, when you see those sales, you'll know where to go to look for potential products to flip. And also uh, just knowing like how often those sales happen. Like for example, one of my favorite websites to source from is Sephora because they do site-wide sales like twice a year. So mm -hmm. when that site-wide sale comes up, um, at the time of recording this, uh, I think actually I'll talk about this because this episode should be getting published after the sale is over mm -hmm. on April 14th. 
there is going to be a site-wide sale on Sephora, 20% off everything. I'm likely going to spend tens of thousands of dollars on that sale. Um, I'm going to have a field day because <laughs> I know a lot of different brands that are sold on that website that usually you can never get them for 20% off. Very true. Uh, I can, uh, I can confirm that. Yeah. So that's another important part of it as well is like knowing like how good the opportunity is. Like I mentioned earlier, Walgreens, Walgreens does do like 20% off codes, but those codes come and go every couple of weeks. So it's really like not that exclusive of an opportunity, but if it's a website where they only do sales a couple times a year, you can go balls deep on some of these items because you're never going to see that item at that price for a very long time. Uh, and again, a lot of it just comes down to experience and being able to know which products are being sold on which websites, uh, which types of products you can usually get discounts on and, and which ones you usually can't. And that it really just, it really is just about building up as much knowledge as possible. And then using those past experiences and all of that knowledge to make informed buying decisions and just knowing when a good opportunity is there. And that's really, it's very difficult to explain, but it's just like a lot of the decisions I make now when I find, when I decide, you know, what websites I want to source from on a certain day or what types of products I want to buy or what sort of discounts I'm looking for is just based off of all my past experiences. Like, oh, this, pro uh, this CeraVe product at Bed Bath & Beyond is $10, but I know that Walgreens also sells CeraVe products. I find the same product at Walgreens, it's $12 instead of $10, but they also have the buy one, get one 50% off. So now it's $9 and then they have 10% off your order. So now it's $8 and 10 cents, but I only was able to go down that rabbit hole because I had built up the previous knowledge that Walgreens also sells those types of products and that they have sales on those types of products from time to time. But it's really just about getting the reps in and building that knowledge base. Uh, I really don't have any other way of the really explaining it because that's just how my brain operates now when I look for products. It's just all based off knowledge from past experiences. The Sephora piece really made it clear in my mind because the products that I'm thinking of, I'm a girl, I buy makeup on Sephora. They literally never go on sale. And like the things that they're not limited edition, they're classics, they're things that girls want to buy every single month that they use all the time that they've been using for five years, their favorite foundation, their favorite perfume. You're totally right. They never go on sale except that semi-annual sale. And so you buy them now. And then I imagine you have a field day with those products at Christmas or something like that. Um, the only question I have with that is, are you ever concerned about expiration of your cosmetic products? Uh, no, I'm not because uh, I... Maybe this is something I need to get better at, but I almost, I usually never buy enough of a product. Uh, mm -hmm. I usually, I try to buy, whenever I restock a product uh, that I know has done well, I usually try to buy around a month's supply um, for that, not just for expiration reasons, but also just because you never know when an item is going to be put on someone else's leads list and there's going to be 30 new sellers on that listing in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, so you never want to go too deep on items uh, unless you're sure that it's going to be a good opportunity and you know that that price is not going to last, uh, like in the Sephora example I mentioned earlier. So typically, I only I don't go that deep. I usually never buy more than 100 of 
something. And I think that's something I actually should try to get a little bit better at. Because even when I do decide like, oh, the data looks pretty good. I should buy 100 here. Those 100 units can be gone in like two weeks, depending on if it's the right product. Um, so that's not really a concern for me. And also when it comes to expiration dates in general, Amazon has a rule where you are not able to send in items uh, that are less than four months away from their expiration date. Mm. And they make you put the expiration date in uh, before you actually submit, send the product in. That being said, I can guarantee you that no one is actually confirming that those are correct. Um, but at least they can say that they tried. Right, 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 right. Okay. Um, okay, so that's an interesting point in regards to what what I'm thinking of now is you have a you have the knowledge you have an internal database of the products that you know are good the ones that the sites that you know you could go to to find these products and on your Substack I imagine you're giving some of that knowledge away but not all of it and so I'm interested in hearing your point of view on how valuable that knowledge is to you that you don't want to sell it because as you were saying you could put it on TikTok and have people just 50 new sellers on your classic products. So it must be more valuable to you than the price that you could sell it to other people. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. So uh, I definitely think there is, uh, I definitely think there is some value in that uh, having knowledge that is exclusive to you, but in a sense, like I am fully, I fully believe in teaching people the process to where they can get to that point where they have their own like knowledge, internal knowledge base is like, you know, teaching people how to fish instead yeah. of just giving them fish. Yeah. Um, so really that's what I think it comes down to. Like I can teach people how to get to that the same point, but their experiences and their knowledge base could be completely different from mine. Cause maybe they went down a different path when sourcing certain products. So maybe they have certain websites and certain categories they like uh, that could be completely different from mine, even though we use the same processes, we could still end up with a different result based on what types of items we found when we sat down to source. Uh, so I really think that uh, I de definitely won't give away all my secrets, but I can definitely tell people like how to get to that point. And right. that won't really affect me that much because you could end up somewhere completely different using the same instructions that I followed. Right, right, right. And if you just told them what product you're going to sell next week, you'd have 100 sellers and nobody would make any money anymore. Um, that's an interesting point, though, in starting maybe where you have a knowledge base. So with the makeup example, starting from ground zero, I probably have a better idea of what is a great product to buy than you originally, because maybe you're not a huge makeup fan. So I know the classic products. I know the perfume. I know the hair whatever that if it's 20 percent off like oh that's gonna go very quickly at full price next week um so maybe there is a recommendation for people to start in areas that they have experience in and if you don't have experience in anything really uh like this so maybe you do start in grocery or you do start with books uh definitely like definitely use your knowledge to your advantage. Like if you're knowledgeable about certain types of products, definitely put those brands in the search bar on Amazon and start from there. Now, granted, you know, that's not always going to work because maybe these types of products that you're looking at 
maybe they're being sold directly by the brand on Amazon, or they're being sold by uh, wholesalers who are getting these products at prices you can't compete with. But generally, I do think that is a good idea. You know, use your knowledge to your advantage. If you're a big supplement guy, you know, put in all the different supplement brands. I'm sure you'll find a couple where there's some, you know, it's just arbitrage sellers on those listings. And you'll be able to make money that way. Uh, for me personally, in Q4 of last year, I was able to sell a lot of a certain toy, uh, mostly because it was a toy that was from a video game that was just about to release. And because I had knowledge of this video game series, uh, I knew that these toys were going to absolutely fly. And I was able to sell a couple hundred units last December because I had that knowledge. And that's like, and there was next to no competition because like, there were not going to be that many other sellers who knew about this video game series that I did. And we're going to be able to put the pieces together that that would be a good opportunity. Okay. So that's a huge piece of alpha. I think is to start from what your knowledge base is and go from there, because I'm sure everyone listening knows some little piece of information about an industry that is unique and, you know, an advantage to them, <laughs> excuse me, but one thing that Lemmings was telling me about was that this is a huge headache to process all of this product and fulfill it, drive it to UPS, send it to Amazon. So if you're doing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of product, what does your house look like? What's your uh, whole, you know, contraption or your compound essentially look like? Do you have a garage that's full of toys and makeup or do you hire your neighborhood kids to help you like broke did what is your whole process look like sure so in the very beginning it was like that i would be in my bedroom for you know a couple hours at a time putting stickers on stuff putting it in boxes taping it up and having you know paying for the ups guy to pick it up the next day and i still do uh, go through that process sometimes. Although I'm usually not the one putting stickers on stuff. I usually pay my sister to do that. Uh, most of my items are processed now through uh, these great things that most Amazon sellers use called a prep center. And a prep center is a third-party logistics company where you send them all your stuff and they label it and send it to Amazon for you. And they charge you on a per unit basis. So uh, for example, the prep center that I use, I pay $1.10 per unit uh, for them to process it and send it to Amazon for me. And another thing that people do with these prep centers is they will use prep centers in states that don't have sales tax. And this is a really important piece because depending on the types of items that you sell, paying that dollar or $2 in a prep fee actually saves you money because it's in a state that doesn't have sales tax. This is especially big for the guys who do the shoes and clothing, because uh, let's say you live in a state like Arkansas that has like 10% sales tax. I, it's like nine to 10%. I think, I don't know. I don't live there. Um, so if you buy like a $50 pair of shoes, you're paying $5 in sales tax. But if you pay a prep center in Delaware and you pay them like $3 for them to prep that pair of shoes for you, you actually save $2, even though you're paying someone $3 to process it for you. So prep centers are a very integral part of a lot of sellers operations. And that's definitely something I also take part in just because, um, you know, putting stickers on stuff is a $10 an hour task. Sourcing products is like, a $200 an hour task. Right. So just 
it's a no-brainer to outsource that as early as you can. And do you need to do a minimum amount of volume with these prep centers? Is there any guaranteed minimums? Um, every prep center is different, and they have the rules on their website of what they charge and what the minimum requirements are. A lot of them do have minimum requirements, like uh, like around 250 to 500 units a month. That sounds like pretty re uh, pretty reasonable barrier to entry if they would have unit minimums, but not all of them do. Uh, um, when it comes to having a prep center, it really just comes down to doing your own research, uh, Googling up, calling up a bunch of places, asking about the rates, asking about all these different things, uh, and just you know finding one that works for you. Okay, so it seems like you have this thing running pretty pretty smoothly and you're making a lot of money. You know where to find these products. Is this the dream to build a very large arbitrage empire? I know Mr. Broke has one. He's got warehouses and he has a huge business that does this. Is this your end dream or is this just a step towards, you know, your first step in the Wi-Fi money journey? Uh, it really isn't something that I've given that much thought to. I definitely think that Amazon is a viable way of making a lot of money for, you know, the next 10 to 15 years at the bare minimum. Um, really, I think the great thing about selling on Amazon and why I try to pitch it to so many people is the fact that you can do it realistically at any scale. If you want to do it just to make an extra thousand dollars a month on the side, just to supplement your income, you can do that. You just have to be willing to spend a couple hours every week putting stickers on stuff and sending it to Amazon. Mm -hmm. You can also build an eight to nine figure empire with a full team of employees. Uh, there's a guy on Twitter named uh, Trader Soros. He used to be like a day trader. Uh, and then he built his way up to an eight figure store with a lot of employees. Uh, I think he's downsized quite a bit since then, but the fact that he got to that point should tell you that anyone who says Amazon is saturated just sucks at selling on Amazon. Like the ceiling is so unbelievably high. I'm nowhere close to any of these guys. Really, anyone who follow anyone who executes on my content and gives it 110% can easily pass me in a few years. Uh, I really don't put in as much effort as I should. Uh, don't let those orange bars on Twitter fool you. Uh, there, the sky is absolutely the limit wow okay i just i think you're doing pretty darn good so i wouldn't be so hard on yourself do you do um like a normal nine to five in addition to this uh yes i do work remote as a software developer but it is a relatively low level position and the expectations aren't that high so realistically uh it's probably like 10 hours a week of actual work plus meetings um but it is it is the Amazon stuff is definitely not my only source of income. I only started paying myself a salary this year. Um, last year where I had like a super explosive growth mode, I was just mostly focused on just reinvesting everything and trying to grow as big as I can. And then towards the end of last year, I talked to an accountant and he's like, yeah, you need to start paying yourself just a little bit. So now I'm on a, I'm on a, I'm on a salary now from the Amazon stuff. It's relatively low. Uh, I can take out more if I need to, but for now I'm still I'm still in growth mode. But it's not hyper growth mode where I don't pay myself at all. I'm, I'm paying myself a little bit, um, and right now I'm just sort of trying to stabilize and sort of stay around the 80 to 100k per month mark in revenue. And if I can stabilize that for a year um, and just keep that rolling, then I can then I'll worry about increasing the salary uh, and then potentially trying to grow a little bit more. 
But I think this year is mostly just about the stability, making sure that I can pay myself a salary and maintain the, the nine to five stuff. Um, so that's sort of where I'm at now. Uh, the, the orange bars are very deceiving. I'm not actually making as much as those orange bars might think make you think I am. Uh, definitely not at the the level that I'd like to be. Uh, but it is it is I am at a point now where it is money in my pocket. And uh, to be at this point now where two years ago my business didn't even exist, uh, and I just graduated university, uh, I definitely never imagined myself being at this point. Yeah, I think it's incredibly impressive. And as someone who has still not really made any money from her side pursuits, I would not downplay it whatsoever. So I think it's pretty awesome. Um, I think you're going to inspire a lot of people listening to this and they're going to go off and they're going to try to begin selling things and doing their own arbitrage empire. What is the one thing that you would caution them or say, don't do this? Um, let's see. Okay, I would say the number one thing you need to do if you're going to start uh, selling on Amazon is always test buy. As in, even if the data says you can sell 100 of these things in a month, do a test buy of 5 to 10 units and see how they perform. The last thing you want to do is dump your entire capital into a into 100 units of a product. And then at the end of next week, there's 50 more sellers on that product and you'll be lucky to break even. Test buying is probably the most important thing when it comes to uh, beginners, because you really, the data can say one thing, but until you actually get the product into Amazon and start selling some units, that's when you really know how the product performs, regardless of what the data says. Uh, there could, like I've said before, there are items where the estimated sales per month says 30 when I can sell 50 while competing with four other sellers. There are going to be other listings where the estimated sell, the estimated sales per month says 200. And then maybe I'm only able to, I only, you know, I don't sell out in that first month when I only test bought like eight units. Mm -hmm. So test buying is probably the most important thing for you to do because if you don't do it you can easily uh just have your capital tied up in bad inventory and that's never a good thing because if your capital is tied in bad inventory that means that you're not buying new inventory which means you're not making more money sounds like a significantly helpful piece of advice uh always test before you dump all your money into it that is what Every single person who has a successful business has told me thus far. So it makes a ton of sense. Um, this has been the most efficient in alpha rich podcast I have done to date. You are one of the most succinct and direct speakers I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. So for those who are listening, where would you like to direct them right now so they can read more of your content and learn how to build a business such as the one that you have? Sure. So uh, if you go to my Twitter, which is just Bowtie Mahi, uh, I have a link tree there. And in the link tree, there are two links. The first one is to my Substack, which I would say is sort of the bare bones starter guide of all of the basics that you need to know when it comes to selling on Amazon. You can use that and you can easily get your first couple sales and hit $1,000 in revenue. I'd say that's a very reasonable, uh, as long as you're not starting with like a very small amount of money. So I would say like, that's where you can get your feet wet, get started. If you try it and you like it and you think to yourself, you know, I really want to take this to the next level. I think I could make this my full-time income. The other link in that link tree is going to be to my course, which is Arbitrage Tactics. It is a full length video course. It is uh, 50 videos over five hours of content. 
Um, and you also get access to a private Discord server where you can personally ask me whatever questions that you want. Uh, I initially was very nervous uh, and was having second thoughts about making a course because uh, typically they're seen in pretty negative light. You have a lot of people who um, sell you very shady products and are, you know, you know who I'm talking about, like those yep, grifters exactly. on Twitter who just like, hey, this, this will help you, whatever, whatever. So I was very scared uh, of making a course because of that, but I'm very glad that I did it. I went out and I built like a fully functional product that has helped people. I've gotten a lot of positive, a lot of positive feedback from the people who have bought it. And I think the reception has been very, very positive. So I'm actually really glad that I did do it. And now I'm actually going to go the other way. I'm going to double down uh, to the person listening to this right now. Buy my course, asshole. <laughs> Without having read or used the course, I am 100% confident that it is going to give you some amount of value after talking to Mahi for the past hour. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. Mr. Mahi, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute wealth of knowledge. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.